So today, uh, thank you, choir and orchestra. I mean, orchestra, thank you so much. That was wonderful hearing the, the songs of Christmas. And they've given a little extra time so that we can look at the message and then we can move right into the Lord's Supper. So in your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew 26. We're going to read the account of Matthew's uh, gospel and his gospel where he describes for us the inauguration, the beginning of the Last Supper, which began right there at Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we'll read it in our text. And we're going to read the text together, share some thoughts about it in preparation of our hearts and our souls when we come together and observe the elements in just a, just a few minutes. If you're new to Great Hills, what we're doing over this holiday season is we're in a series of messages we're calling Preaching the Paintings. And so I've chosen six very powerful, notable paintings and uh, what we're doing at Great Hills is we're studying those paintings. So in just a few minutes, and I don't pretend to be an, an art expert or, or a museum curator or anything like that, but we are going to look at the text upon which the paintings were built. We're going to look at the painter, and then we're going to study the actual religious work of art. And I'm really excited about today because we're going to look at Leonardo da Vinci, and we're going to look at his Last Supper painting there in Milan, Italy, and we'll walk through that together. And I've got my little pointer here, so we're going to have a good time. And we're going to look at this painting and pray that God prepares your heart and my heart as we engage in the text. Now, we, we spend most of our time on the biblical text, right? If there were no text, if there were no sacred scripture, then Leonardo da Vinci and Rembrandt and Raphael and Van Gogh, those guys would have, they would have not have painted these amazing religious works of art if there were no Bible. And so we have the copy of God's word. We get to study it, we get to read it. And in this high Renaissance and now Baroque period of time, we're looking at Leonardo. And as he paints what is arguably the most recognized piece of art in all the world, arguably the most recognized, and it is the Last Supper of Jesus and the 12 disciples. And so we'll look at the painting in a moment, but first let's look at the text. So we're in Matthew chapter 26. I'll read the text, make a few comments as we study it together. And then we'll talk about Leonardo for just a few moments. And then we're gonna look at the Last Supper painting and then we'll have the Lord's Supper. Are you happy to be here? Say amen. Amen. Me too. Me too. I'm just thrilled. Love this time of year. I broke out the sweater. Amen. I've got one sweater, I think, and I'm wearing it today. And I also wore it last night. I just got to share this with y'all briefly. A lot, a lot of you don't know what happened last night. At Great Hills Baptist Church, we had well over 500 Hindus and Muslims in our church. You say, what happened? Did they get lost on their way to the temple or the mosque? No. They were strategically invited by some of our wonderful uh, Indian brothers and sisters in Christ. They put on a phenomenal Christmas program. They brought in a Harvard um, a faculty member who's also a pastor, had great fellowship with him last night. He preached the meaning of Christmas right there in the Great Hall. It was packed with people. They served them a wonderful meal. And uh, I walked out of here about nine o'clock smelling like curry, but I was so happy in my heart. And so thank you guys. God bless y'all. That was an amazing night last night. So church family, I just wanted you to know about that. Many people heard the gospel here last night. Woohoo! Thank you, Alex and Ravi. Now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, that would be Passover, okay? The seven day, well, eight now, including the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, 
Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. So let me stop there for just a moment and just kind of recreate for you what is going on. This is Monday, Thursday, Thursday night. Jesus has given explicit commands to go and prepare the meal, the Passover meal. And remember, this is all based out of Exodus where Moses told the children of Israel, put the blood upon the post of the door. So when the death angel comes, he sees the blood and he passes over your home and he spares your firstborn child. And that's why, that's how you get the word, literally passed over or Passover. And Jesus is observing this very sacred meal, this feast, the unleavened bread. Exodus tells us that they were in such haste as they were baking their bread. They didn't have time to net it with the dough. And so it is unleavened. It has, I mean, they don't have any leaven in it. It's because they're, they're hurrying out of Egypt and they're moving to the promised land. And so this is a memorable, I mean, a momentous time in the life of the Jews and Israel. And it's packed out. Jerusalem is packed with these pilgrims, these worshipers. And so Jesus He's going to initiate, he's going to begin something that you and I, here we are 2,000 years later. We're going to remember Christ and his death and his resurrection. And he began all of this right during that time of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, or also known as Passover. Now, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, let me stop right there for just a moment. When Jesus said those words and Leonardo da Vinci read the sacred text, he stopped. He stopped and for four years, he painted what he thought would be the expression of the disciples when Jesus said, and one of you will betray me. Stop, Leonardo said, stop right there. And then he began to paint. And he began to weave these expressions and these beautiful gestures and these ominous looks. And we'll study it in a moment, but I want you to know the context that he wrote, that he painted immediately after Jesus said, and one of you will betray me. And I think that'll help you understand the, the painting in a moment and all their expressions. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And that would be Judas. As you'll notice in the painting in a moment, Judas is just to the right of Jesus. And Jesus' hands are going to be stretched out and there, the wine will be there. The bowl will be there. There's a bowl with wine in it. And Judas and Jesus maybe even simultaneously are dipping into the same bowl with their bread. In Jesus' left hand, there's another piece of bread because right after the, he says, one of you going to betray me, he then moves right into inaugurating and beginning what we know as the Lord's Supper. But he clearly defines that one of you is going to betray me. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man, yea, i.e. Judas, woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas. Now, notice this, church. This is really interesting. Who was betraying him? Not who would 
betray him in a few hours. No, at this time, he had already received the 30 pieces of silver from the religious aristocracy. They had already plotted, they had this ploy, they had this idea that Judas, you're one of his, and if you can very, very pointedly identify him in the night, in the garden, so that we don't arrest the wrong person. We want to make sure we get the right person. So give him a kiss. So this is all in Judas's mind. He already has the money. In fact, Leonardo paints it as he is clutching the money in his right hand. Okay, you'll see it in a moment. He's got this bag of money. And Judas, who was already in the process of betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, not Lord, but Rabbi, teacher, is it I? And Jesus said to him, you have said it. I don't know who all heard that. I think had Peter heard it, he would have taken the knife that he has in his hand and he probably wouldn't have waited to cut off Malchus's ear. He probably would have tried to cut off Judas's ear. And Leonardo paints it. I don't know if you can see it in our painting tonight, but if you, today, but if you can't, go home and pull it up on your, te- on your screen, on your, on your computer screen, and very clearly, uh, Leonardo da Vinci paints the Apostle Peter, one hand stretched out toward Jesus, and the other hand, he has a knife. That's, that's a lot like Peter, isn't it? Very impetuous. Peter's in process, right? He's got his knife. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Okay, watch this. He moves, he transitions right into what we're going to remember now is the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. This commemoration of the, the body of Jesus broken, signified in the bread. He blessed and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said these words, take and eat, this is my body. Then, right after that, I mean right after saying, Judas, you're the one. You will betray me and Jesus in his omniscient mind, he knows that in just a few short hours, He'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will be kissed with this kiss of betrayal by Judas. He knows his arms will be, will be grabbed violently and he will be taken off to, to Caiaphas. He knows that he's about to be beaten. He knows that he's about to be crucified. He knows he's about to die. And even in the midst of all of that, Jesus has the wherewithal to say, this is very important. Please make sure you understand this is about to happen to me. My body is about to be broken for your sins and my life's blood will be poured out as typified by this cup of wine. So whenever you grab this bread and you take this wine, please remember that I died for your sins so the whole world will know how much I love them. All this is wrapped up right here in this amazing text. He took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and he said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed, right? How do you shed blood? Blood that courses in your veins. In order for it to be shed, it, it has to be, the body has to be penetrated. There has to be wounds. There has to be excruciating pain. And Jesus knows all of this. And he's saying, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until... From now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And verse 30, it's like I'd never seen verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, how do you sing a hymn on the eve, on the precipice of your death? How can you sing praise to God the Father when you're about to be impaled upon a stick of wood 
and, and beaten and bloodied beyond recognition and shamed. Your, your body's just barely covered and you're going to be lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth. And all of this is coming and yet you have the wherewithal to sing a hymn of praise to God. What? Hallelujah. What a Savior. What an amazing God He is. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Okay, so this is the, the text, and I'm, I know you're familiar with it. You're probably familiar with Luke's version and John's version. It's very, very similar. But I want you to just engage just, just with a moment with me with the text, the sacred scripture. If there is no text, if there is no Bible, there is no painting. <laughs> there, there is no famous work of, uh, of Leonardo da Vinci or uh, Michelangelo with some of his amazing uh, paintings. And by the way, Michelangelo and da Vinci were rivals. They lived in, in Florence. They lived in Italy. So now we're going to just go right on into talking about Leonardo here for just a moment. Leonardo da Vinci is arguably the most recognized and famous painter of all painters, whereas Michelangelo would be that sculpture. Raphael, I call them the great triumvirate of high Renaissance painters, Baroque painters as well, as they're in Italy at the same time. And uh, Leonardo is, how can I say this? As I've studied his life and up late last night still reading, I'm almost finished reading a biography that weighs more than I do. This biography is huge. And so I'm, it's a labor of love because I've actually immersed myself. I think it's like an investigative reporter who would take weeks and weeks of his life and just pour his life into the story so that he could be familiar with the facts and with the data so that he could give an accurate report. And if a reporter could do that, then how much more should I do that as a pastor, as a preacher of God's Word? So I've been immersed in Walter Isaacson's biography simply called Leonardo da Vinci. He also wrote a wonderful biography on Steve Jobs. And in a moment, you'll see some of the similarities between a Steve Jobs who founded, of course, Apple and a Leonardo da Vinci, because we're talking about men with gargantuan, brilliant intellects. He is the epitome of a Renaissance man. Leonardo da Vinci, he was, um, let me give you exactly his, his birth and, and his date, make sure I get this. Born in Florence in 1452, died at the age of 67 in 1519. Um, brilliant. Here, here's his disciplines. A painter, a scientist, a mathematician, an expert in theatrical designs, in architecture, in military warfare, engineering, and that's just to name a few. That's just how brilliant of a man Leonardo da Vinci was. He was born out of wedlock. Um, his father basically treated him as an illegitimate son all the way through his life, left him no inheritance. But he was baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church with 10 people as witnesses. He entered into an apprenticeship in the studio of the Florentine artist Andre del Veraccio, and the rest, as this author says, is art history. Now, when you think about Leonardo da Vinci, you, you think about some paintings. Somebody help me with a lady in the Louvre in Paris. Somebody help me. That would be Mona Lisa. Let's, let's see her for just a moment. How do you talk about Leonardo and don't mention her? Um, I remember a few years ago I was on a mission trip and, and I was on my way to, I think it was to Africa, and we stopped in Paris. We had 12 hours. And so I went to the Louvre and stood in line and saw her. And it really is an amazing work of art. And it's the, the beautiful, 
I mean, the intricate design, the abilities that he had. Well, there she is, Leonardo's masterpiece. Let me show you another one. This may be, besides The Last Supper, this is my favorite of all the Da Vinci, uh, da Vinci paintings. The Virgin, the Child with St. Anne. St. Anne is the mother of Mary. Mary is sitting on her mom's lap, Anne. And to their left is Jesus. And I don't know how well you can see it in the, um, in the painting. Let me, let me look up here with you for just a minute. It's dead. Is there another one? Oh, good. Where? Oh, there it is. Yay, yay. Yay for backup. Woo. Thank you, Terry. Man, okay, here we go. Do y'all see this? This is a lamb. So this is Mary and Anne and Jesus and the lamb, the virgin and the mother and Jesus with the lamb. The next one is a lady. Oh, Ginevra da Vinci, I think. Can we see her picture, Corey? Um, she should come up next. There she is. Now, this is just a classic Leonardo da Vinci painting. And the curls and the hair, the landscape, I mean, just the, the delicate design. And she wasn't really that famous of a, of a person. The reason I'm putting this on here, because I'm proud of myself. And here's why. I found this, the only Leonardo da Vinci painting in all of North America, and I found it in the Washington National Gallery of Art Museum. When we were there just a few weeks ago visiting the White House, we saw, I saw this, and my wife was so patient with me, and I just about got giddy, congregation, when I found Ginevra, whoever her name is, there she is. Woo! I know y'all excited to see that, like me. Okay, let's talk just a little bit more about uh, Leonardo. Um, he's known uh, for some other paintings. In fact, we're going to study the Adoration of the Magi on December the 23rd. Please be here for that Sunday. You don't want to miss that Sunday because Great Hills Baptist Church has spent a few hundred dollars and ordered a Da Vinci painting of the Adoration of the Magi. And we're going to give it away as a drawing for that lucky person who draws the right number in just a, just a few weeks. Terry offered that out of his salary so that we could buy it. I really appreciate that, so thank you. So he's also, now he's known, Leonardo da Vinci was not a Christian. And that breaks my heart. The best I can tell in studying his life, a very flaming, practicing homosexual, and I mean, he flaunted it. Unlike Michelangelo, who was a homosexual, who hid it, and even committed to a life of celibacy because he knew it was wrong. But Leonardo said, forget that. I don't care what the Bible says, what anybody says. I, this is who I am. And he, he flaunted it. And I read a person that said, yeah, but he still was a Christian because how could he paint what he painted and not be a Christian? And that's just representative of some faulty theology. I mean, I can walk into McDonald's, but that doesn't make me a cheeseburger, right? I mean, you, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't repent and believe, then you're not a Christian. And that, that hurts me. I, I studied so hard. I looked at his life at every angle and I wanted to stand up here and say, and Leonardo's in heaven today because he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. But unlike Van Gogh, he, he did not. But he was known for starting projects and then never finishing them. 
And there are paintings after paintings of when he would have this flash of brilliance and he would start and then he would get a little, uh, he would, his mind was so gifted that it was very hard for him to stay on a project for that long. But he did with this one and he stayed with it for four years, 1495 until 1498. This inability, Walter Isaacson says, to ground his fantasies in reality has generally been regarded as one of Leonardo's major failings. Yet, and this is an interesting insight, yet in order to be a true visionary, one has to be willing to overreach and to fail some of the time. Innovation requires a reality distortion field. Let me stop right there, because if you've read Isaacson's biography on Steve Jobs, you know that's exactly the way Steve Jobs' mind worked. He, he altered reality. I believe we're going to create a day when a man can take a phone, a woman can take a phone, and they can take their finger and they can just push it, and then everything will change just with their finger. And they thought Steve Jobs had lost his ever-loving mind. There's no technology under the sun that can do that. He says, but I'm going to do it, and he did. And we enjoy it today with our iPads and with our iPhones. And Leonardo had that kind of mind. The helicopter, scuba diving gear, um, irrigation where you drain a swamp with a pump. Hundreds and hundreds of years, Leonardo da Vinci was already working on those things. Isn't that crazy? I mean, genius, crazy, prodigious, genius, brilliant mind. Innovation requires a reality distortion field. The things he envisioned for the future often came to pass even if it took a few centuries, and this is where Isaacson lists scuba gear, flying machines, helicopters, suction pumps, now drained swamps. Listen to this sentence. And I hope this encourages some of you. Sometimes fantasies are paths to realities, i.e. Steve Jobs, i.e. Walt Disney, i.e. Leonardo da Vinci. Okay, so here we go. Now we get to look at the painting. Woo-hoo, I'm I'm just charged up about this. I've spent so much time with this painting. I'm ready to talk about it. And I'm glad you're here to hear it. All right, you ready? Here we go. The Last Supper painting. So what we're going to do is we're going to um, give you just a little bit of background behind the painting. He was paid to do it, all right? He was commissioned by the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, a family friend, a friend of Leonardo's. So he pays him to go to the monastery in the refectory, which is the dining hall where the priests or the monks would go and eat their meal. So every day when they would come in to eat their meal, Jesus would be there with the Last Supper. And he painted it in such a way that it just grabbed your heart, grabbed your attention for these priests when they walked in. Santa Maria del Grazia is where you can find this uh, today. 1495, he began. 1498, he finished. He would, Leonardo would arrive sometimes, get on his scaffolding, and he would start painting, and he would stay there from sunrise to sunset, never drink anything, never eat anything, and he would just work on this painting. And then other times he would come, he would climb the scaffold, he would take his brush, he would make like two strokes, he would get off of the scaffold and go home. And that's why it took him almost four or four years. So there was this prior, the P-R-I-O-R, this prior, he complained to the Duke of Milan saying, Leonardo's taking way too much time. And so I think, Duke, Mr. Duke, you need to speed him up because at this rate, we're never going to see the masterpiece. He's taking way too much time. 
And Leonardo responded, listen, genius takes time. And if I want to procrastinate, and if I want to take my time, I will. And so at this point, he was having a hard time getting the face of this guy. And this guy here is Judas Iscariot. Lo and behold, Judas is over here too. There he is, Judas Iscariot. All right, you with me? And he told this prior, he said, if you keep complaining, your face will be Judas of Iscariot. <laughs> True story. And he went back to the Duke, the prior did, and said, Never mind, I'm just going to go back to my garden. And never again did he complain because he literally was afraid that Leonardo da Vinci would have his face etched as, as Judas. True story. Isaacson says, it turned out to be worth the wait. The result is the most spellbinding narrative painting in history displaying multiple elements of Leonardo's brilliance. I've already mentioned to you, but let me say it again because it's really important as we look at this, that when Jesus said, and one of you will betray me, stop. That's they just suspend in time. And then Leonardo begins to paint. So in the painting, there are 12 apostles and they're grouped in threes. You with me? One, two, three, and four. With Jesus Christ himself being the center. He's larger, if you'll notice, his, his physique is larger than, than anyone else's. He has a halo. You can't really see it as much here, but he created a halo. And, and somehow he did it with his brilliance, with the glow from the, for coming from the windows. It was almost like he created as if the sun was bursting upon Jesus, shining through uh, the windows here. You see the elements here? You have lots of bread. You have lots of wine. You have some... some uh, utensils or at least the, the plates there. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go from left to right and I want to share with you in, in Leonardo da Vinci's mind who is who, where he put them, the expressions on their faces and sometimes what they are holding in their hands. Many times you're going to see we're here beginning here, the, the, the gestures here, 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 Jesus' hands here, here. There's hands everywhere and he was a master at painting people's hands okay and their facial expressions one of the da vinci characteristics is the curls in the hair and there's just the detail the amazing i mean really incomparable detail that he could paint so i'm going to begin over here i'm gonna look at my notes a little bit if you'll allow me because i want to make sure i get this right on this side you have bartholomew and then james the minor and then andrew bartholomew is rising to his feet you see this He's leaning toward Jesus. Most of them will be leaning toward Jesus except this guy. He's leaning away, and we'll talk more about him in just a moment. But this is Bartholomew. James the Minor is next. James the Minor. He has his arm, you see this, wrapped around Andrew, but his arm is actually touching the shoulder of that guy, and that's Peter. Peter is fired up and ready, all right? He is already leaning toward John, his hand is pointing toward Jesus, and in Peter's hand, you can't see it well here, but he has a dagger, he has a knife in, in his hand. Now, in, in the Gospel writers, it doesn't say that Peter had a knife uh, in his hand. Leonardo, is, is, he's, he's adding to it, but he thinks it could very well happen this way. All right, so that's James the Minor, his arms wrapped around Andrew, his hand is resting on Peter's shoulder, perhaps to calm the fiery fisherman down. Then Andrew is here. I don't know if you can see it, but his hands are raised to signify what I believe is he is absolutely startled and shocked 
at what he just heard. The next three would include Judas, and then Peter, and then John. Judas is not very attractive. He has a very distinct hook, hawk-like nose. He colored in his complexion. He has him leaning back. And Leonardo, I think, has done an amazing job depicting Judas here. In his right hand, he is clutching the money, the 30 pieces of silver. And in his left hand, I'm sorry you can't see it as clearly here, but him and Jesus, their hands are about to reach because he's the one that will dip the bread in the wine with Jesus. And Jesus says, you are the one who is uh, betraying me. Okay? If you go over just a little bit further, you'll see John. And John, uh, he is leaning away from Jesus because Peter has got his uh, undivided attention. And if you'll notice, John has a very effeminate look to him. Um, so much so that Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code, he helped create this, uh, this theory that this is not John, this is Mary Magdalene. Do y'all read that? Y'all heard that? It's very popular. And that one of the disciples was not, uh, was not John here. In this case, it would be Mary. And I love what Walter Isaacson said, who wrote this biography on Da Vinci. He said, it is absolutely unsupported by the facts. And Isaacson is just saying, the fact is that Da Vinci, he knew very well what he was doing. And he was painting John as well as Philip over here in a moment in a much more effeminate way. Okay. And so this is John, his head is bowed, the mystic, the thinker, he's, he's crestfallen, he's hurt, his best friend. He, remember, you'll, you'll read in the scripture, it was the disciple who leaned upon Jesus' breast at times. So this is John, and then in the center is, is Jesus. And so he has him here with his right hand near the wine, near the bowl. But notice this hand, it's open. And that's really, really important. And I'm going to talk to you about that in a moment. Jesus' hand is open toward the bread because I can't wait for a moment. Let me tell you now. The reason why he's, Leonardo's put this here is because right after he said, one of you will betray me, but I'm going to die for you and I'm going to die for the rest of you. And here is how it's going to look. My body will be broken like this bread and my, wine, my blood will be spilt like this wine. And remember me. For all time and eternity, remember me because I'm doing this in your, I'm doing this for you for your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Powerful. Okay, the next three. Let's look at these guys real quick. You got Thomas, James the Greater, and Philip. Thomas, James the Greater, and a Philip. You can't really tell it, but Philip does have a much more effeminate uh, female kind of look to him, much like John does. So this first guy here. Um, let me get to it right quick. Thomas, Thomas, there it is. His finger is pointed up. Do you see that? Thomas's finger is pointed upward. And this is a classic Da Vinci uh, characteristic. The index finger's up and the other fingers are turned inward. Probably he's asking, which one of us is it, Lord? James the minor is here. His right hand uh, is extended. You see it toward Jesus. His left is toward the table. Um, okay, I mentioned Philip with effeminate characteristics to him. The last, the last trio, we're going to come here. These three are having a serious uh, conversation. They're talking to Simon over here, the older. But you got Matthew, Thaddeus, and Simon. Matthew's hand is extended out this way. And then you have here, you have Thaddeus. And I, don't, I know you can't see it, but Thaddeus, his right hand right here, 
And I'm going to show it to you. It looks like this. His hand is literally like this. And, and there's debate on what Leonardo meant by this. Is he saying, who? Who is this? Or is he about to throw his hand down and say, how could this be? Some believe he may be even pointing, gesturing toward, uh, toward Judas. Isaacson says, Leonardo was a master of gestures, but he also knew how to make them mysterious. So that the viewer could become engaged, is he slapping his hand down to say, I knew it? Is he jerking his thumb toward Judas? We, we don't know. But they both are talking to this guy and his hands, can you see his hands? This is Simon. And his hands are pointing. Are they pointing toward Jesus? How could it be? Is he saying, I don't know? I don't know who he's talking about. Or is he saying, I knew it was him all along. And so Leonardo has created these hands and these gestures and really left them for us uh, to interpret. But the real key here, I th of course, the, the object that we're looking at is Jesus, the person. And then we're looking at this open hand. His, his hand is toward the bread. This hand is toward the, the juice or the wine. And he's about to say, do this in remembrance of me. I know some of this is fuzzy, you can't see it, but if you go home and you pull it up on your, um, on your computer screens, and if you want my manuscript, for $25, I will send you this manuscript because I've worked so hard, I'm just kidding. It's always $19.99, I'm sorry, $19.99, and we'll give it to you. No, seriously, contact us, let us know, we'll be happy to mail it to you free, and you can kind of walk through these. As I put weeks into research into this, you can just, you can read through it. Okay, so we're, we're about to get into the Lord's Supper, and I'm, I'm so excited. But before we do, I want to take just a minute. And just, just what, what is it that God might be saying to you and me in this amazing text, in this painting? What, what, what could he be saying to us? Well, I've got three or four things I want to mention to you. Number one, at times, and these are in your, your bulletin, by the way, if you have your, your outline before you there at the bottom, it looks something like this. It's got the notes here. The first one is this. At times, God does a greater and new work in the midst of much sorrow and difficulty. And I tried to bring this out in the context of betrayal and suffering. Jesus, in the midst of all of that, he has the wherewithal to say, yes, I'm about to die, but I'm doing this for you. And I thought about you and I thought about me. Could it be in the midst of our chaos in the midst of our crisis, listen to this, in the midst of we think, God, this is awful. And I imagine the disciples are going, what good could ever come out of this? Jesus just said he's going to be betrayed and, and his blood's about to be shed and his body's about to be broken. And yet I submit to you that God was doing his greatest work at the greatest point of tragedy. And he still does that, by the way. So don't give up. We don't stop. God's up to something. Just when we think, oh, mercy, the end is near, God could very well be doing his greatest work in your life and in my life. So I, I just glean that. I just cherish that from, from this text. At times, God does a greater new work in the midst of suffering. Number two, to sing in the midst of sadness is the mark of spiritual maturity. And this, this convicts me. I mean, I grappled with this because I'm not there I want to be there. And I'm wringing my hands because I'm nervous. I'm confessing to you today that when, when tragedy strikes and difficulty comes, the first thing on my lips is not always to sing praise to God. It's to argue, it's to complain to God. It's to get mad, it's to fuss. 
Not that any of you ever know what I'm talking about, but they didn't do that. I mean, they, they went out to the Mount of Olives in the context, in the crucible of all of this difficulty. And the Bible says, and they sang a hymn of praise to God. Wow. Lord, I want to be there. Don't you? Wouldn't you love to get to that point in your spiritual walk with God that come what may, all hell is broken loose out on your marriage and on your family and in your job or maybe in your corporation or on your health and whatever's happening, you're going, but God, you're still good. You're still God. And I'm going to praise your name. And I'm going to thank you, God, that this is going to turn out for my good. Wow. I want to get there. I want to be there with you. Number three, finishing well is so much better than starting well. Judas started well, but what? He did not finish well. Peter did not start so well at times, but he finished well. Now, Jesus started, continued, and finished valiantly, courageously. But if I could contrast and juxtapose a Judas, for example, with a Peter... Judas, yeah, he, he was one of the 12. He started out great, but he got greedy and covetous with money. And Peter, bless his heart for all of his foibles and all of his, all of his impatience. And in a moment, he's going to cut a guy's ear off for heaven's sake. I mean, that's Peter. But you also see Peter at the end of his life being crucified upside down, saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. Number four, and this is the last one, an examined life is a life well lived. An examined life is a life well lived. What Jesus is doing here, he is creating an atmosphere where we can examine our lives. I was listening the other day to someone who was saying, you know, in church today, we don't do introspection anymore. We don't do examination anymore. It's all celebration. Rah, rah. Woo-hoo. Life is amazing. You're amazing. I'm amazing. Let's just go out and be amazing, you know. But that's not reality. Jesus is amazing. And there are amazing moments in walking with him. But I don't know about you, but there is hardship and difficulty and pain and dementia and cancer and suffering in this world. And we have to grapple with that. And we have to deal with that. We have to wrestle with that. And so Jesus wants us to. He wants us to. He wants us to get introspective. He, he wants us to evaluate. He wants us to talk about hard things like, like death and, and dying and, and mourning and betrayal. And Jesus is saying, all of this is tied up in these elements. Come with me. Think deeply with me. Watch me. Here's what's about to happen. I'm about to die. I will rise from the dead. I will give you eternal life. Ooh, listen to this. But before there's a glorious resurrection, there's always a difficult crucifixion. Same in Jesus' life, it's in your life and in my life. But that's okay. In church, we don't just say, don't talk about that. People don't want to talk about that. Let's just talk about happiness and joy and everything is great and rosy and wonderful. That's not reality. Reality is pain. Oh, listen to this. Pain, sorrow, suffering, but one day... With Jesus, it's all gone. We're in heaven and we're with him and we, we're in his presence. And crucifixion, resurrection, and then finally exaltation. 
So as we pass these elements out in just a moment, I really want you to go deep. I want you to think deeply. Some of you are going, oh, this is so painful. I don't want to think, no, no, do it, church. Do it, do it with me. Think deeply. Think about your life. Think about Jesus. His body was broken for you. His blood was spilled for you. And as you take it and eat it and drink it, say, thank you, Jesus. Just tell him. As you're at, and, and David Winkler's going to appear. He's going to be playing the piano. It's going to be quiet for about five, ten minutes. And I'm going to give you this bread. We're going to give you this bread and this juice and just soak it in. And, Father, that's what we want to do right now. We want to, first of all, we want to thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior that would love us so much to show us the path to eternal life. It is a life of denying self and taking up the cross and following you. And so we thank you. And in your honor and in memory of your great name, we will take this bread. We will eat it. We will take this juice. And we're going to drink it. And as we do, we're going to say glory to God who has given us his son so that we might be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, deacons. God bless you as you pass out the elements.